0: So we've done uh, gone through the atonement twice so far, two different teachings on the atonement and in both of those teachings um, we looked at the uh, Old Testament shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross we've looked at uh, going as far back as the Garden of Eden with his Old Testament shadows. Tell me some things you've uh, learned so far you remembered. Jesus is the mercy seat. The mercy seat. You can put that it for right. the New Testament. That's right. It, it's even it, better to put mercy seat in there. Yeah. A lot more descriptive and, and right. it captures the Old Testament picture. Amen. Yeah. Every time you see the word mercy seat in the Old Testament, if you were to go with the Greek Old Testament, the Greek word halestereon would be there. What's the same word used in the New Testament and translated as propitiation into English? And unfortunately, because of a lot of different uh, false teaching out there, propitiation has a lot of false definitions tied to it. And uh, so I think a better translation would be mercy seat, personally. And uh, not only that, one thing I, I was studying more this week about Second Corinthians 5. We talked about this last week a little bit, um, how uh, he bore our sins there, and uh, he became sin for us. Uh one thing I've been studying going through the Old Testament a little more is that when you see sin offering in the Old Testament, uh, in the Greek, the only word that's there is the Greek word for sin. And so if we have the Old Testament sacrificial system in picture when we're reading 2 Corinthians 5, we, if we're going to be consistent in our translation as the the Old Testament Septuagint has the Greek word there for hamartia, which is the Greek word for sin, they don't have the word for offering there. So we know the Old Testament is talking about sin offerings. Therefore, in the 2nd Corinthians 5, we can say Jesus was a sin offering. He became a sin offering for us. Not he actually became literally sin for us. So what else did you have you learned so far? Well, the uh, children of Israel, the blood of the sacrifice, they put over the blood kind of the sacrifice, the blood of the it's the same thing with Christ. That, right. uh, that if they abided in the house, that the wrath of God would come upon them. But if they came out of the house, right. then outside of God's protection amen the testament amen and so you see in that that tenth plague the wrath of God was served upon people who were not in God's house covered in the blood of the lamb and not only that those who were in the house that's covered by the blood of the lamb what happened to them after they were delivered from bondage and that's that's right there's a the perfect picture of the told me, delivered from the wrath of God and delivered from bondage that's what it's too much meant to do yeah. Oh, I just want to add that um, you, did, you also said that um, the wrath of God wasn't put on that lamb that was slain either. Right, right. so even though that the blood of that lamb or the lambs who were put upon the doorposts it saved those people from the wrath of God that lamb itself did not take the wrath of God upon it or those lambs themselves. Yes? Uh, my favorite was the 14 15, and Jesus will have victory. Amen. He has had victory. Amen. So you see a foreshadowing. It's almost like you get to read the end of the book before we see the end of the book. You see the foreshadowing of Christ being victorious. What else? Anything from last week you remember? Or Jeff? Scapegoat. Scapegoat. Okay, what about it? Yeah, that's what scapegoat means. It means to remove, to uh, take it away, to take away the sins, and it gives a lot of perspective on what John the Baptist said, right? And John one twenty-nine: "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." That he had that in. in John the Baptist, a Jewish person, had that in picture. The scapegoat. Now, now did the scapegoat? What, what did the high priest do with the scapegoat, Jeff? Do you remember? Uh, he was cast out, yeah. He, what did you say, Brother Vaughn? Like right. The and they released it Into the wilderness. wilderness. And so the high priest would confess all the sins of the congregation of Israel upon upon that goat. Now, did that goat become a sinner? No. Is it possible for a goat to be a sinner? Mm-hmm. It's an amoral creature. Impossible for a goat, or for a dog, or for a chicken, or for anything else, any other kind of animal to become a sinner. And not only is that impossible, it's impossible for you to be accountable for someone else's sins, for you to be guilty of someone else's sins. Yes, that's impossible as well. Now even as my father, you know, I came from my father. He's been a drunkard, he's been a adulterer, he's been a fornicator. I'm not accountable for his sins. And all the sins I committed before I became a Christian, my son isn't accountable for my sins. There's no transferring there. But it is symbolic. And not only that, it's symbolic not just of the atonement, in Christ isn't symbolic of forgiveness, because Christ, the goat, is taking the sins away. As the east is from the west, the Bible says, so your sins have been removed from you. As forgiveness is taking those sins away. Anything else you wanted to share from these last couple of times? That's right. A shadow can be detailed or it can be... Not very detailed, but it 's always pointing to one thing that 's pointing to this thing that 's casting the shadow, and the closer you get to the shadow, the closer the, the shadow gets to the person or the thing it 's giving the the uh, shadow of, casting the shadow of, the more details you see. And so we, we get to see along the way that, you know, at the beginning Genesis 3, 14, 15, we don't really see too much there. We kind of see that he's going to bruise this, you know, crush the serpent's head. The serpent's going to bruise his heel. We see a little bit of victory. The closer you get, the more details you see along the way, the more details you see. Okay, so this week we're going to look at the extent of the atonement. And what I mean by that is that there's an idea going around uh, Christianity that Christ's to- atonement is limited. By God. And this, uh, is part of this acronym called TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. Everybody, most everybody here knows about this acronym. And L stands for Limited Atonement. And most, and I've talked to hundreds, probably even thousands of Calvinists in the last eight years or so. And as I have, most of them will tell you this is the weakest point of their acronym. Uh, because they have the hardest time proving it scripturally. In other words, they they come to this position based upon the other positions they have. Okay, tulip all, go, all goes together. We know that if you break one of those letters, the whole thing falls apart. But but L, um, they come to this not necessarily based upon. I mean, Obviously, they think they have some biblical text to base it upon, but not not as strongly as I think they have the other scripture, other points they have. And so they have this position called um, when it comes to the atonement, called the um, penal substitution theory of the atonement. Now I'm not gonna get too much in depth on that because next week we're gonna talk about the New Testament, all the different words used around the atonement, and then a week after that we're gonna talk about different theories and and more detail and whether we should hold to them or not, any of those or not. But this theory of the atonement says that God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. So the exact punishment sinners deserve for their sins, Christ received it within three hours on the cross and God poured out his wrath upon his son that he would have given to the elect, the ones who God chose in the eternity past to be saved, he poured it out on his son instead. And his son only died for the sins of those people. He didn't die for the sins of the world, which means there's no possibility that everyone could be saved. The only possibility of people who could be saved are those who were already chosen in eternity past by God. Okay, so this... This is their view of the atonement. Now, if those things are true, then it makes sense that the atonement would have to be limited. Because if if by Christ dying for you on the cross, he receives your exact punishment for your exact sins, it makes sense that you could never be lost. It makes sense that you're definitely going to be saved no matter what. And it also makes sense that if he died for everybody, now what do we have? We have universalism. And so they don't hold to that, so they necessarily have to come to this position of, limited atonement. Now I'll say this. The atonement is limited in some ways. The question is, who is it limited by? And the other question is, why is it limited? Okay? So what well, the first thing I'm going to do today, I want to give you some verses that they use to supposedly prove that the atonement has been limited by God in the sense I just described to you. That it's been limited by God in the sense that God that it couldn't possibly be for everybody couldn't possibly be for everybody, and it's only for these specific people that God has chosen in eternity past. Okay, so let's go to Isaiah 53 first. And what you're going to see in some of these verses that, they're, that we're going to go through that they say support their position, you're going to see this word many, okay, as opposed to the word all, okay? So Isaiah 53, verse 11 and 12. Obviously, obviously, all of Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus, a messianic chapter here. Even part of Isaiah 52 is talking about Jesus. If they would have been a little smarter in their chapter divisions, they probably would have included the last few verses of Isaiah 52 in this chapter as well. But we know chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. It just made it easier for us to look up verses and study. Okay, so verse 11 says, He shall see the labor of his soul, talking about Jesus, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, that's talking about Jesus, shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Okay, so in verse 11, we see it says he justified many. Now is, justification is talking about someone's right standing with God. Now as sinners, sinners don't have a right standing with God. They have a wrong standing with God. They're at enmity with God. God's wrath is upon them. They're on their way to hell. So, but when you come to Christ and you forsake all of that, you trust in Him, you become right before God, justified before God, because of what Christ did for you on the cross, God forgives you of your past sins. Okay, that's justification. And we'll talk more about that in the next foundation, the doctrine of salvation. But we all, I mean, verse 11, I have no problem with that from my position because I think only many will be justified. Not everybody's going to have a right position with God, a right state before God, because not everybody's going to be saved. There's no problem with the word many there. Now, verse 12, it says, he bore the sin of many. Now, if I were to say, let's say, for example, um, a guy walks in here, and he's got a gun in his hand. And he comes in the back door. He puts the gun to Brother John's head, and he says, "Someone's going to die here." And let's imagine Brother Tracy's here. I know he's not here today, but Brother Tracy, like he often does, he says, "It's got to be me." You know, he'll stand in there. He'll take he'll take the place. And maybe you begin to tell your family members or friends about what happened, how Brother Tracy died for Brother John. Now, he, he, you just, you're you just talking about Brother John. But the guy, when he walked in, said, someone is going to die here. Now, just because you talk about him dying for Brother John does not mean he didn't die for the rest of us, right? Just because you mention the one, or maybe you say, well, Brother Tracy died for Brother Jeff and Brother John. Brother Jeff, he's towards the back of the door, too. It could have been him in trouble. He died for uh, Brother Jeff and, and Brother John. Does that mean he didn't die for everybody else? So just because someone uses the word many... Does not mean there's no sense in which he died for all as well. Now if you had the word only here, then we might have a problem. But does it say he bore the sin, he only bore the sin of many? And what I want you to realize here is that what they're saying, even though they won't say the word only when they're trying to discuss this doctrine, they're imposing the word only upon many. As if that's the only one who the only people he bore the sin of. Okay, so I want you to pay attention to that. Let's turn to Matthew twenty twenty-eight. But just like when we were going through Matthew and we would go to Mark and Luke and we would harmonize scripture, uh, some accounts would say one angel, some would say two angels, but the account would, that would say one angel wouldn't say there was only one angel. And so we have no problem harmonizing those passages together and realizing they're talking about the same exact situation, but one gives greater detail than the other. Okay, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Uh, Verse 27 says, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom, for many. And so here we have again this word that says many, but it doesn't say he only gave his life as a ransom for many, but that he did give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when it comes to these scriptures that talk about many, when we start to compare them to the scriptures that talk about all, we're going to see some defining factors here. And what I'm going to propose to you is when we see the words many here, it's referring to those who it will actually be efficient for. Okay? Because Christ sacrifice on the cross, his atonement was sufficient for all people. But it's only efficient for some. In other words, it's only applied to some people because they don't meet the right conditions of repentance, faith, and then perseverance to the end. Okay? So when we see the word many, what I'm seeing it says is, these are the ones who actually apply it to their lives. When you see the word all, what I'm seeing it say is, this is all who could have been saved, or all who could possibly. It's, it's sufficient for all people of all times who have ever lived. That's how great His sacrifice is. Matthew twenty-six and verse twenty-eight. And if we're not going to go to Mark or Luke, but they'll have some parallel passages which they'll use the word "many," which are speaking of the same exact passage we're going to in Matthew. Okay, Matthew twenty-six and verse twenty-eight. Jesus talking about the uh, uh, Lord's Supper here, and he says uh, in verse 20, "For this is my blood of the New covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins." Now not only do you have many in the sense that I think it's being efficient only towards many, you have many in the fact of it talking about a number, okay? If I say that there's many people in the world. I'm not referring, comparing many to all. I'm just talking there's a lot of people. That's all I'm saying. And so that's another way you can look at these many verses. That you simply could be saying, I shed my blood for a lot of people for their remission of sins. Okay. Let's go to uh, John chapter 10 and verse 11. Now keep in mind, like I said, when people who believe in TULIP or limited atonement, the L, when they read these verses, what they're thinking it says is, uh, he, he died only for many. He was a ransom only for the many, for the remission of their sins. John chapter 10 and verse 11 this is another example of this. Not the word many here, but something else. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, does the word only, is it, does it appear in there? There's no appearance of the word only there. So it doesn't mean he only gave his life for the sheep. But it does mean the sheep are the only ones who applied it to their lives. The only ones who it was efficient for. Okay? Ephesians 5. And verse 25. Says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So according to this verse, he gave himself for the church. So we've seen he's given himself for many. He's given himself for the sheep. He's given himself for the church. And then Hebrews 9, 28, just another verse that talks about many, who he gave his life for. And these are the ones they use most. I mean, there's some other ones that talk about many, but these are the most prevalent ones by far that they use. <clears throat> verse 28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin, for salvation. So it mentions many there as well. But now what I want to do is go to Matthew 1, I want to take this position to this logical conclusion and I want to take every time it says a certain group of people or a certain individual and I want to simply apply it like they're applying these verses and say, "Well, this is the only person he died for or the only group he died for." And let's see if it makes see if that hermeneutic makes sense and let each other verse I'm going to share with you, ma'am. Matthew 1.21 it says um, this is the angel talking to Mary and he says and uh, she will actually this is the angel talking to to Joseph I'm sorry in a dream in verse 21 it says and she will bring forth a son talking about Mary and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now who are his people? The The Jews. So now if we're going to use their hermeneut properly, we're kind of imp- implying the word only here. Now Jesus only died for the Jewish people. Does that make sense in the light of the rest of Scripture? Of course it doesn't. Let's go to Acts 20, 28. <clears throat> and in Acts 20, and verse 28, uh, Paul the Apostle is talking to the Ephesian elders. How do we know this? Because we go back to verse 17, it says... From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So he's calling for the elders of the church at Ephesus. Now, this is one of the things he says to them in verse 28. says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, what flock has he made the Ephesian elders overseers of? The church of Ephesus. Okay, So keep that in mind and we'll read the second part of this verse has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, what church of God is he referring to here? The church of Ephesus. So now we have in verse 20 of Acts 20 that Jesus uh, died to purchase with his own blood the church of Ephesus only. Okay? But that doesn't make any sense either. We know that from uh, the rest of Scripture. Let's go to Romans uh, 4.25. And who's uh, Paul writing to in Romans? The church at the church at Rome. Yes, very good. Romans four twenty five The Apostle Paul says about Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. Now Paul is starting to sound confusing. Uh because he's he's saying here that they died, that Jesus died was delivered up for the offenses of the Roman Church, but before he was saying just for the Ephesus Church. But well, we know that's not what Paul's saying. You know he's not he's not implying at all the word only. And just like those verses that use many, or he died for the church of God, or died for the sheep, it's not implying only there. It's simply just stating a fact. He did die for the church. That's part that's one group, a part of the whole that he died for. He did die for the the sheep. That's one part of the whole that he died for. He did die for the many. That's one part of the all that he died for. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> and who is who's is he writing to? In the uh, book of 1 Corinthians, the church at yeah. Corinth. Yeah, you're catching on. Uh 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. Paul says, "For you were bought at a price so the church of Corinth only people who Jesus bought with his death on the cross was the church of Corinth but we know that's not true in fact 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 23 says that something very similar you were bought at a price very same thing he's saying to the Corinthian church go to Galatians chapter 1 and uh, who is Paul writing to there the church at Galatia Galatia yeah. You're a smart group. Alright, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So who did he, who did he give himself for? Who, did, who does he want to deliver? Paul, who he's part of the us now, because he's including himself in it now. He died, not just the Corinthians, he said you, he's saying us now. Now it's Paul, he's part of the group now. He's Him and the Galatian church were all um, people who Jesus gave himself for, that he might deliver them from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now let's go to Galatians 2.20. Now it's going to get really narrow. I mean, it's going to get really narrow here. Paul's being real exclusive. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I guess he only died for Paul now. Now this, this is the kind of hermeneutic people are using when they're going to these many verses, that for the sheep and for the church verses. They're simply implying an only there. And then Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ has redeemed us, Paul and the Galatian church, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's an us there. okay. Um, and then we have in, we'll just do one more, 1 Peter 2, 24. It says, talking about Jesus, who himself bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteous, righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So, uh, whose sins that he bear, Who on the tree and whose uh, stripes whose, who were healed by his stripes? Well, according to 1 Peter chapter one of verse one, the pilgrims of the dispersion. Those are Jewish believers who were dispersed from Jerusalem, different places because of persecution. Uh, so only them. So we have these, all these different groups here. But now let's go back and let's talk about the all here. Let's go to these verses here that make it very clear, in my opinion, that he died for all. Isaiah 53. Once again, go back to that, and we'll see how consistent they are with these two verses here. People who believe uh, who everyone, people who believe they'll use verse 5 or verse 6 to say everyone has sinned and they'll say that means all universally let's see if they're consistent in their interpretation of these two verses okay but he Jesus was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed all we' like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, in verse 6, you see the word, I mean, verse 5, you see our, and you see we, so they might be able to twist that a little bit to make it only about the elect there. But in verse 6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. If you talk to someone who believes in Tulip, they'll say, this is a verse talking about all people everywhere, we've all sinned, we all like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. That's everybody universe. But the last part of the verse, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, that's a different all now. That's not consistent. It's the same all. I agree the first part of the verse is talking about all people universe, but I also agree the second part of the verse is talking about all people universally. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Which, what, is, what does that make you think of now? Laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does that make you think of? The scapegoat. Yes, that's the right thinking. Not this Martin Luther thinking where he literally became a sinner, became the most sinful person ever lived on the cross, and this is where prosperity gospel teaching comes in, and he just went to hell and he got born again in hell because hey, listen, if Jesus was the worst sinner ever, he deserves to be in hell, first of all, and second of all, now he needs a savior and needs to come born again himself. We know that's not true. So all we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's go to John one twenty nine. This is one I quoted a little while ago. John the Baptist here. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, In Leviticus 16, when we have the scapegoat, whose sins were laid upon that goat? The congregation of Israel. All the people of the congregation, and anyone who joined them, because they were allowed Gentiles to come and join their fold, if they got circumcised and were willing to submit to the law of Moses, they would, and they would be part of the congregation of Israel now. But here, John the Baptist, who's very familiar, his father was a priest, very familiar with the Old Testament law, Jesus is not taking away only the sins of the congregation of Israel, he's taking away the sins of the world. And here's one question I would ask someone, and I've done it several times with basically no answer in return. If God wanted to communicate to us that literally Jesus was dying for all people in a sufficient manner that all could possibly be saved, how would he, what words would he use? How would he communicate it? Could, I mean, John 1.29, what, what way would it be changed here? What different language would John the Baptist use if he was trying to communicate what I think he's actually saying here? Would he have changed his language at all? Would he have used different words at all? I mean, how much more clearer could you be? You really have to come to it and try to twist it. You really do. John 3.16. For God so loved the world the world of the elect now, you know, the world of the elect, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Now, a lot of times people uh, who are believing in limited judgment will hear us preaching in the open air, and we're preaching on hell, preaching on sin and judgment, probably more than the love of God, more than the grace of God, because that's what the crowd warrants the state of the heart of the people who are listening, and they'll bring up this verse, John three seventeen. 17. Christ wasn't sent to condemn the world. But if the world in verse 16 means the world of the elect, then what's wrong with me condemning people who aren't part of the elect? In verse 17. It's the same word. It's the same world. Of course, we're not condemning anyone. God is condemned according to verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. He's not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. So they already stand condemned. Before we get to them, we're just trying to reveal to them, manifest them through the preaching of the Word of God. But they already are condemned. That they might look to the Savior, might look to Jesus, who is their salvation. But how how would we change verse sixteen if we wanted to literally say that God actually did love the world and he sent a Son for the whole world, every person? I mean, would we change any words in there at all? I don't see how we would. Go to John 6 and verse 51. Now Jesus is speaking to a large group of people here. He fed 5,000 men, uh, plus women and children, in John chapter 6 beginning, and then they followed him across the sea. Now he's speaking to them. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven, which is relating back to the manna, it's another shadow of Jesus right there. He will, uh, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is of my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Of the world. Now, let's just step into the limited atonement person, shoe for a second. He's not talking about world, universally, all people, all time. He's just talking to the people in front of him. And he's saying it to the people in front of him. Okay? Now let's, and he says in verse 22, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now go to verse uh, 66. So at the least, if he just doesn't mean world like I believe he means it, in verse 51, he's got to mean at least the people in front of him. And we see in verse 66, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So where did they go? They went to hell. He died and went to hell. So, I mean, you really, I mean, if you're going to say world, he's not even talking to the people in front of him? He's not even referring to them when he says the word world in verse 51? No, he means world universally. Because the manna from heaven was for who? The children of Israel, right? Who were in the desert, wandering around. But now, just like John the Baptist changed it, Jesus changed it. Now it's for the whole world. It's sufficient for the whole world. Let's go to Romans 5, 6. Actually, I'm sorry, John 4.42 first. Let's get over that one. And we know Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman in John 4. His disciples went to get him something to eat. He spoke to her. And uh, the disciples came back and said, I'm not hungry anymore. Because he was doing the will of the Father. That is his food. Now in verse 42... Um, this is talking, this is the people who the woman brought to Jesus. They came to hear for themselves what this man was going to say. And this group said, then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Okay, Romans 5, 6. Romans 5 6 says that for when we are still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, of course, if you're going to believe in limit the tone, you have to say the ungodly who will trust in Christ. Or the ungodly who chose or who were chosen from eternity past. But he died for all the ungodly. And this is one thing that I was we were worshiping this morning. The Lord just hit me with a flood, just how ungodly I was. Reminding me of all my wickedness. And how Christ died for me. And if that, that that one verse, those one, two, three, four, five words right there, if that doesn't break the sinner's heart, I don't think anything will. Christ died for them. And it goes on to say, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare die. Yet God demonstrates his own love towards us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So you're seeing how all these, we've we've looked at verses that talk about world several times already. Uh, All in Isaiah 53, ungodly in Romans 5, 6. Now we're going to look at some more all in 2 Corinthians 5. And we're starting in verse uh, 14 and 15. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all of those who live, Should live no longer for themselves but for him, who died for them and rose again. Now it says, if one died for all. And the people who believe in limit to will point out, well, it says, then all died in the back of it. Well, do you think all died? Well, all it's saying here simply is this, that Christ dying for all proves that all have died. They all are in need of spiritual life. And if that's true, that's the point Paul's making here. If all everybody died, that means Christ died for all, because all are in need of him. It's not saying, like referring back to Romans 6, that all died in that sense. They partook in his death, burial, and resurrection, or they got baptized. It's referring to the fact that they're all in need of this life that Christ offered. And we know that those uh, who have received what he did for them, it says, will live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's the way they'll live. And we see that in verse 17 that they're also new new creatures. The old things have passed away, behold, all has become new. And then in verse 18 it says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, going back to verse 14, if all died in the sense that all are going to be saved, then we would have no ministry to do. We have a ministry of reconciliation because not all yet are reconciled. Who will be reconciled? Not all right now are reconciled who will be reconciled. So it says the wor- so in verse 19 it says that, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them as committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we have this word of reconciliation where ministers and ambassadors of reconciliation were bringing it to the world that they might be reconciled to Christ, to God through Christ. And that their sins, their trespasses, won't be imputed or counted against them or held against them any longer. So the word impute means. So God won't hold. That's what happens to the ones here who, who are Christians. You still have a record of sin, friends. God reminded me of my record this morning. Not to condemn me, but to remind me of how gracious and kind and loving he is. And that record's still there. It doesn't go away. God is not holding against you. He's not counting against you. Oh, the love and mercy of God. How great He is. Go on to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. So we've seen that Christ died for the ungodly. He died to reconcile the world. He died for all. In verse 15, Apostle Paul is speaking of his past life here. He said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, referring to his past life. If you go back to a couple of verses, you'll see it's referring to his past life there, talking about him being the chief of sinners. He's not currently the chief of sinners while he's saying this. Uh, but, uh, he came into the world to save sinners. Well, I'm thankful he came into the world to save me, and the ungodly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 6 says, Three through six says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So now we have to deal with ransom for all and then we see in other verses, Like in Matthew 26, 28, ransom for many. Now, how do you interpret these in light of each other? Well, the same way I talked about before. The all is who it's sufficient for. The many is who it's efficient for, who actually have applied it to their life through responding to the gospel message in an obedient fashion, through repenting and forsaking their sins and trusting in Christ. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men especially of those who believe this verse right here another one I'll share in a second I think really gives a lot of clarity on this topic of the many and the all that he is the Savior of all men that's the sufficient part especially of those who believe that's the efficient part the ones who apply it to their lives by doing what? by believing the gospel by obeying the gospel 1 Timothy 4.10. And that right there puts, he's breaking up to two, two different groups there. He's a savior of all men, but especially those who believe. That's two groups. And, and they're all a part of this one group called the world or all in Scripture. See, in the word all, you can have several groups. Like in the world, we say the whole world. There's there's people who live on a continent of Africa. We call them Africans. People who live on continent, a uh, continent of Asia, we call them Asians. We have Europeans. We have South Americans. We have Americans. And we have Canadians. We have Australians. Right? We have Filipinos. We have all different kinds of people all around the world that are different, smaller groups in and midst of the whole group. And so here we have it being broken down for us. Seder of all men, especially those... Who believe. First John 2 and verse 2. Here's the other verse that brings clarity to the subject here. Other scripture here. Talking about Jesus. It says that He Himself is the mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only. Wow, they, they certainly sort of twist this verse. But also for the whole world. Here's the two groups again. You have the all and you have the many. You have the ones who are applied to their lives and the ones who don't apply it to their lives. But the ones who don't apply it to their lives, it's, Christ's sacrifice is still sufficient for them. They still could be saved. Or they might be saved, as John 3.16 says. They might be saved. And so we see we have, we have all and we have many and we also have, let's just look at one more. First John 4.14, talking about this all here. 1 John 4, 14 says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Of the world. So he's saying he's testifying of that. So not only did he die for the many, and for the sheep, and for the church, but he also died for the all. He died for the whole world. And if we're going to use these kind of hermeneutics that I use for the words many and the words the sheep and the church, we're going to have to use it across the board and it won't make sense out of the Bible, that's for sure. Not only did Christ die for all, he even died for those, let's go to Romans 14, uh, who will depart from the faith. Romans 14. Starting in verse 14. Talking about the law of love here. Not being a stumbling block to your brother. Not using your, your liberty in Christ to stumble a brother on these doubtful things, not talking about things that are sent across the board for everybody, these doubtful things, it says in verse 1 of Romans 14. So Romans 14:14 14, 14 says, And I know I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. This is Paul's, he's convinced on his own conscience regarding food, there's nothing unclean of itself, even if it's offered to idols. He has no problem with that, it's not unclean in his eyes, because he gives thanks to God for it. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is greedy because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom for whom Christ died. You can you know you can destroy your brother, cause a brother to depart from the faith by the way you interact with him or her, a brother or a sister. And it says right here that this is one whom Jesus died for. One whom Christ died for. First Corinthians eight says something very similar. First Corinthians chapter eight starting in verse 9, going through verse 13. Very same situation here about your conscience, being sensitive to others' consciences. It says in verse uh, 9, it says, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For anyone who sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, eating in an idol's temple, Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? So there's a possibility that a weaker brother could perish, whom Christ has died for. So not only did Jesus die for the whole world, but he died. Most of them are going to hell, and he died for them still. Go to First, uh, Second Peter, Chapter Two. This is probably one of the most strongest ones that deals with this, that Christ died for those who turn back to their sins. Chapter 2 and verse 1 of Second Peter. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, talking about the Old Testament, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So these false teachers who are bringing destructive heresies in a very secretive way, the Lord bought them. The Lord bought them. And yet they're still going to go to swift destruction if they don't repent. Okay, So we've seen today that um, we looked at these verses that say that many, dying for the sheep, dying for the church, And the people who use these verses, these passages to support their position of limited atonement, they use it as if it's an only, an exclusivity is applied there, and it's only those people who Jesus died for. And then we looked at uh, this way that uh, we can kind of bring their their way of thinking, their way of interpreting the Bible to bear on other verses and how it does not make any sense out of those verses, kind of reducing their position to absurdity. If you can get them to admit using their way of thinking that that couldn't possibly be true because no one's going to say that Jesus only died for Paul or he only died for the church of Corinth, or the only the church of Galatia, or the only the church uh, of Colossae. Not gonna, they're not going to say that, so it reduces their position to absurdity and they say, well, I have to give up that position. That well, doesn't mean they will. They're pretty entrenched in this position, but the fact of the matter is they should. And we look at scriptures that said that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Uh, he takes away the sins of the world. He died for the ungodly, died for sinners, died for all, and we looked at the, the scriptures first. These are the, probably the most important ones in all this whole teaching. 1 Timothy 4.10 and 1 John 2.2. That divide up in two different groups, as I've been saying the whole time. Those who it's sufficient for, and that's those who are it's efficient towards. So the question becomes, going back to the first question that I asked you today, is the atonement limited? The answer is yes, in some way. It's efficiency, it's limited. In its sufficiency, it is not limited one bit. But in its efficiency, it is limited by who? What's that? Those who, by those who are offered the gospel and choose to reject it. But not only that, it is limited by God in this sense, that He only allows it to be efficient or applicable towards those who meet the conditions. So God has limited in that sense, but it's not as if God is choosing who it's going to be for, He's allowing them to choose if it'll be for them or not. So yes, the atonement is limited, but not in the sense that Tulip says it is. Not in the sense that Calvinism teaches it is. In the sense that the Bible teaches it is. So Christ dying for you does not equal automatic salvation. And that's part of the problem here. That's what they think. If you're part of the group that Christ died for, you're automatically saved. Your sins are automatically atoned for because he took the exact punishment for your exact sins and that's it. It's automatic salvation. And you can see from the way they look at these verses that their atonement view, their atonement theory, is the driving force behind their false and bad interpretations. And I'll just present this this question to you one more time. If God actually wanted to say what I say he's saying in the Bible concerning the atonement, about the extent of it, how would he change it? How would he change the wording of the verse we looked at today? Would Would he change it at all? Would he communicate it in any other way? It's, it's just as clear as a bell, friends. So that's where I end today, and we'll open up the uh, floor to questions, objections, or things you want to add. Josh. Yes, uh, ma'am. I was just wondering if you could... Um, I, I missed three verses. Okay. John verse in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. okay um, let's see you were talking about um, how it doesn't um, like Calvinists you're saying, you were talking about how if you use these verses to say that um, you know if you use um, uh, the, their, the Calvinist hermeneutics then yeah. it would only be the only, the only verse in Ephesians they went through is Ephesians 5.25 and you said you missed one somewhere else too John. The one that right okay, John chapter 10 and verse 11. So that's talking about him dying for the sheep, and Ephesians 5 is talking about him dying for the church. Yeah. Uh Hebrews 9.28. After that one. And then I was wondering if you could do the definition of impute. I was wondering if you could do the definition of impute. Yeah, impute is the Greek word logizomai, and it means... uh To consider as, to recognize, to account as. So, you're considering someone to be a certain way, but they're not not actually that way. So, basically, to break it down means he's not. If if God is not imputing your transgressions to you, He's not holding them against you any longer, even though they still exist. You know, people will use that scripture and that I quoted, as the east is from the west. So your transgressions are removed from you. Let's say, well, look. They're tossed into the sea of forgetfulness and God forgot them. Now, God doesn't have a bad memory. God doesn't cease to be omniscient because Christ died on the cross. Christ died on the cross does not change God's character. His character remains the same. So, and, But we'll get into more of the impute and propitiation more next week as we talk talk about the different New Testament words used. Yes, Brother Sean. I just want... I just wonder if you could touch on, uh, the use of all and world, uh, just to explain that, because I'm sure they'll run into Calvinists at times who will say sure. all means, you know, Jew or Gentile. Cause like Romans 3, I think, is an example where uh-huh. Paul is saying Jew, Jesus died for Jew and Gentile and he says all after that immediately. Just kind of to touch on that. And, and everyone would be included in Jew and it. Gentile. Yeah. So that, there's no problem with that. No. Yeah. Now, we're not saying, I'm not saying, that every time the word all is in Scripture, or every time the, the word world is in Scripture, that it means world or all universally. Uh, but the context will determine, like when it says uh, that Julius Caesar taxed the whole world, is it referring to him taxing North America and South America? No, but, that, but we know that because from the context, Julius Caesar didn't have authority over the whole world universally. And so when we look at words like world and all, the context will determine. But, but going back to my original question here, or not my original, one of my questions I had for you today was, if God wanted to say, through words, what I'm supposing he's saying in Scripture, what what other language would he use? Just because in certain contexts, like the one I just mentioned for world, it doesn't mean world does not mean it never means that, that's for sure. Okay? Good. Thanks for bringing that up, Sean. Because they will bring that up sometimes. If, if you deal with Calvinists... Who believe in this position, they will bring that up sometimes, and you're going to need to tell them. Listen, the context will determine. It. Show me in John three sixteen why it doesn't mean world universally. Show me in John one twenty nine where John the Baptist said it why it does not mean world universally. Show me why. I mean, and we see in First John four ten and First Timothy four ten and First John two two the distinction between the two groups. And so we 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 know it's got to be two different groups talked about there. Brother John. Uh, back to the chief of sinners that Paul mentions in First Timothy uh. chapter one, I believe, uh. and Romans chapter seven. Of course, we're still always used to try and <clears throat> defend this idea that we we are all living in current sin. Yep. Um, and I'm t- just trying to get a, a, a clear apologetic how to to address that. Um. Okay. First Timothy 1.12 says. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and on belief. the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners in whom I have achieved. So Paul is simply saying here, Proof that Jesus came in the world to save sinners is that he saved me. Because I, I was the chief of it. Okay, and he's referring back to it. He said, I formerly was a blasphemer, a an insolent man. He does the same thing in Romans 7, too. Up to a point, mm-hmm. and then shifts, what seemingly shifts to the present tense. And, and like I said, it, Paul would admit this. He still has a record of those things. So in that sense, he would still be the chief of sin. Now, why is he is, he, I mean, is he as bad as Hitler killing six million people? But he's calling himself that because he persecuted the church of God. It's a very uh, dangerous thing to do. And Romans 7, I mean, I took a whole teaching to teach on that. You'll have to just watch the videos uploaded online. But I'll just give you just a quick couple things on that real quick. Romans 7. I think the key in that passage to understanding it properly is first of all, going all the way back to Romans 6 and reading all the way through Romans 8. If you have a problem Romans 7, watch the teaching online, start at Romans 6, read it all the way through the end of Romans 8, and keep doing that. And eventually you're going to get the flow of thinking he's giving you here. Okay. Um, but when it comes to verse 17 of Romans 7, the sin that dwells in me, that's usually the main issue here. Uh, but we're talking about, uh, end of verse 23, a law of sin which is in my members. Okay? That is a sin that was is in somebody, the law of sin in the members, and that's referring to a a custom. The word law there is referring to a custom or a norm, uh, a procedure or practice that has taken hold. That's what the Greek word means. So this person who is obviously referring to their past life, they're living according to the flesh. They're referring to their past life. Um they lived that way and found no way of escape because they had developed this law of sin and their members, this habit, this practice that has taken hold, and practice or procedure has taken hold, and they found no way out. And then at the ver- end, of verse, uh, end of chapter 7, it says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And verse 24, who would deliver me from this body of death? And who he thank? Jesus. Of course, Romans eight one says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Jesus, who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The guy in Romans 7 is walking according to the flesh. He's condemned, according to eight, chapter 8, verse 1. The law of sin in, in our members it is that sinful nature, according to what we believe, yeah. uh, of practicing and developing a second nature of uh, when I become an alcoholic and drinking yep. all the time. Yep. Yep, that's what it's referring to. And, and, and verse 5, if you go back to that. This in Romans 7. It kind of gives you a, pre- a precursor to what he's about to talk about. Actually, verse 4 says, so, Therefore, my brethren, you also became dead to the law you did become dead to the law through the body of Christ, which is at the end of Romans 7 talks about, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we are held by, so we should no longer we should, so we should serve in the newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So right there, he gives the two perspectives... And now he's about to give the perspective of being married to the law still, of being in the flesh where the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members. That Romans 7 is referring to. Is those sinful passions which were aroused by the law, which were at work in our members. Which is this practice you have developed over a period of time, this procedure or practice that has taken hold, a customary norm, that, uh, you know, this has become natural to you. Whereas in the beginning, because, listen, you were born with a good constitution. You were born with a conscience. And your conscience condemns you when you do wrong, and it uh, excuses you when you do right. But after a while, I mean, I, I have experience with this and I was a sinner. I became a Christian at 19 years old. I did a lot of things. And uh, I can tell you for, for a fact that I was dulling my conscience where I wasn't hearing it on certain things any longer. My conscience was not bothering me on drunkenness anymore. till the Word of God came in, Pierce through that crusty exterior of my conscience into the tender parts of my heart again, and I began to listen to the Word of God. Yeah. So that's, a, that's kind of a summary of what I said, but I mean, I would really encourage you to watch the video again. You can get it down a little better. Roshan? I just got a quick question mm-hmm. regarding it, might have more to do with what you had talked about last week or last time you talked. Uh, you mentioned the verse though in Hebrews nine twenty-eight. Mm-hmm. There's a last little snippet kind of thrown in there when it says that uh, we eagerly wait for him. He right. will appear a second time apart from sin. a of comment on the book get, uh, apart from sin. Okay, okay. Well, it's obviously referring to him bearing the sins of many, and that's been done and over with. He's not going to do that any longer. He's bore our sins. Uh just in the, the lay of the scapegoat, he led him off into the wilderness. Uh in the lay of the other goat that slaughtered, he his blood was put on the on the mercy seat. And so that's not going to happen anymore. And when he comes back, he's going to be apart from that. And he's coming for salvation. So in some sense, we'll get into this more into the next uh foundation talking about salvation. There's a future salvation which awaits us that we don't currently have. And that's why Jesus can say in Matthew 24, those who endure to the end will be saved. Will be saved. Not already are saved, but will be saved. Okay, And you can see that when it talks about uh, Christ's offer the bearishness of many, it obviously gives a, a description of what that many looks like. Those who are eagerly wait for him. That's who he's talking about. Well, people who are living in the sinner day, and all about themselves and their selfishness, they're not eagerly waiting for Christ. They don't have the grace of God that brings salvation, that causes them to look forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They don't have that. And so that many's even defined in that verse, in verse 28. And of course, those who believe in limited atonement, they're, uh, they're, they they confess and profess their sin every single day in thought, word, and deed. So how is that eagerly waiting for Him? How does that qualify as that? Get Right. You know, that, that's another. That's John 3.16, yeah, whosoever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, know, you you can probably go through the same, uh, hermeneutic as far as showing that there's the verses that apply to, uh, the Samaritans, mm-hmm. right? Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Right. And we he through this. And, uh, and is he talking only about the, about them? Right. Not a whoever. Well, they obviously okay. didn't think that because they, they said world well, at the end of John 4.42, they said, we see right. he's a savior of the world. Yeah. So then who, all the whoever verses are yeah. going to get it too. Right. At the end of Revelation, whoever, whoever out his drink, right? right. Come, right. let him, let him drink the water of life. Right. 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 So that's another, another good thing that we could do as well. That amen. show people all the whoever verses. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Whosoever, whoever. John 3 16, John 4. Yeah. Those are good passages as well. All right. Amen. Anybody else? We are counting sins, and our sins are blotted out, and we are counting it back again. You mentioned it earlier before, but there's one verse I don't totally remember. that if we can account it again, right? our sins were blotted out, and he's not remembering them now, not accounting them to us now, but we returning to our former state. Mm-hmm. That's Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant, uh, where he went to the king and he had a great. A great, great uh, debt that he owed him that he could never pay back. I mean, absolutely never pay back. It was such a large debt. He could, not he worked the rest of his life and would never pay it back. Um, and then his fellow servant came to him, uh, very small. What I, what I, when I, cons- when I uh, figured out how much ten thousand talents was equal to, if you get work a, a normal job making a normal wage, is fifteen thousand years worth of wages. And he was pardoned for that. Now, now, keep in mind that the, it wasn't paid by somebody else. He simply was pardoned. It wasn't held against him. And then he didn't forgive his fellow servant who owed him a hundred days worth of wages. Big difference. And so the king found out about it and threw him in jail until he paid all, which will never happen. He'll be in jail for good. And of course, Jesus says, so my heavenly father were also talking to disciples now, so my heavenly father I'll also do to each of you, from his heart, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Okay. so If you begin to be unforgiving towards your brother, God will hold all your sins against you again.